Thank you, Toby. I think it's very important in these days that we uh, state our faith and affirm our faith, and that's a great song to help us do that. Uh, when all is uh, turmoil and all is chaos and nothing is certain, uh, we, we go back to our affirmations, our good confession, our statement of faith of what God has revealed. And uh, uh, that song preaches, I'll tell you, that, that is a great song. Bless my heart this morning. Well, I think uh, as we progress through this uh, adventure together, this uh, great unknown, I think uh, what is happening, at least in my life, is the test has now become one of contentment. Uh, This has been quite a journey. We've all been through various stages and feelings uh, and emotions related to COVID-19 and the reaction to it. But it feels like to me, as I try to get a pulse of our church through phone calls and as I uh, look at my own walk in life, that the test of tests now is one of contentment. I don't think we're at a place of, oh no, are we all going to die? I think we're at a place of, oh no, when will this end? When will this be over? Are we content with a reasonable amount of household supplies and food? Are we content with a complete change to our exercise routines? Are we content with working from home? Our youngest son, the first week of working from home, sent a pictures like, wow, working from home is great. And by week two, he was like, I kind of miss going into the office. I looked at uh, my uh, IRA the other day for the first quarter of 2020. It lost 20% from January to March. I probably should be thankful. It was only 20%, but am I content with the new levels? There's no Awana, no robotics, no youth, no Sunday school, no home groups, no sports of any kind, no Little League baseball, no Little League soccer. Are we content? Am I content being by myself? Am I content being with just my spouse? Am I content with being with just my family? And of course, there's graduations and weddings and vacations that have been canceled or may be canceled. <clears throat> have I found yours yet? The title this morning is How to Be Content During COVID-19 and Beyond. The text is Philippians four ten to 14. So if you'll find that in your Bibles, Philippians 4, 10 to 14, that will be our, <clears throat> our text this morning. The text idea, the main idea of this passage is this. In a very personal passage, Paul uses I or me, I think 11 times. In a very personal passage, Paul explained for the suffering Philippian church that he knew how to be content in every circumstance of life. That leads to the sermon idea this morning. This passage reveals how every Christian can be content in every circumstance of life. My purpose is to show you how to be content during COVID-19 and beyond. The question answered by this text is how. How is this possible to be content in every circumstance? Now, let me qualify what I mean by content by telling you what I do not mean. Being content is not an excuse for being lazy. It's not an excuse for being passive. Being content does not mean you can't have plans, goals, and ambitions as you serve the Lord. Content does not mean that I just sit on the couch all day, every day, and wait for someone to serve me. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about here a spiritual virtue of dependence and humility in the midst of godly ambition, plans, dreams, and determination. So don't think that when I speak of contentment today, that that means you cannot have drive and determination as the Lord propels you forward. But the question that this text answers is the how question. But before we look at how to be content in every circumstance of life, let's look at what Paul is doing here in this text. Verses 10 and 14 serve as bookends on this text of historical context of Paul's own contentment. It's verse 10 and verse 14 that frame this passage for Paul to... Uh, set before this Philippian church his own example of contentment. This brings us to this historical backdrop, and I'm really drawn to it, especially now during these days. I'm drawn to Paul's house arrest here as he writes this prison epistle of Philippians. We talked about it some last week. I'm drawn to his situation because, lo and behold, Paul is sheltering in place. Yes, he is chained to a Roman soldier, making that sheltering in place even worse. Can you imagine? Someone at your side 24 hours a day. That is an invasion of privacy for sure. Paul is sheltering in place. Paul is in a stay home, stay safe sort of situation. Paul is under a spiritual quarantine, if you will. And like us, he didn't know how long it would last. He had no idea it wasn't, it wasn't in his hands. We know it lasted at least two years for Paul. Like us, he did not know the outcome of this house arrest. He didn't know if it was going to end up in more life eventually or even death. And like us, it disrupted all of his plans, but disrupted none of God's plans. In chapter 4, verse 4, we saw last week, Paul says, and he commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now drop down to verse 10 as Paul takes his own medicine. As Paul does, by way of example, what he called them to do. Look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at last you, Philippians, have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then he bookends this with verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. As I explained last week, Paul's under house arrest. He's writing back to the Philippian church, really an extended thank you letter for their financial support and their prayer support. And that's what he's referring to here in verse 10. He's boasting and rejoicing in God greatly because they have revived their literally thoughts for him. They're thinking about him and praying for him and they've revived that and demonstrated that by this collection that they took up for him. And it has been delivered. He says, indeed, you were concerned before. They've always been thinking about Paul, but they lacked an opportunity But they had a certain visitor who was going to go visit Paul. That opened up the opportunity for them to to support him. They're sharing with him in his affliction, verse 14. They're fellowshipping. That's the idea there. That's actually the word. It's koinonia. They are entering into Paul's suffering. And, And he's boasting in the Lord in this because his suffering is an impetus for their gracious gift, which glorifies God all the more. 
Paul's glorifying God in his suffering, they're suffering and glorifying God, and they're supporting him, and that just redounds to the praise and thanksgiving of God, and it's in that sense that Paul rejoices. The suffering has led to God getting more glory, and that makes Paul happy. He rejoices in the Lord greatly. Now, I want you to notice that he rejoices over their thoughts, not over the money itself. That's so important. He's rejoicing that they have done well in his affliction. Paul is a pastor at heart. Paul is an evangelist and a pastor and a shepherd. And and what he sees through their gift is not the money itself. That's irrelevant to Paul. What he sees is that these people love the gospel and they love him and they love the Lord. And this is the manifestation of it. And so he is uh, rejoicing in how they are progressing spiritually even as he is apart from them. And I can, I can echo that, I think, in, the, in these days for our church. I really can. Uh, we have been rejoicing in how our church feels like we're being drawn together even though we're apart. How we're rallying, rallying together. And I rejoice in, in your encouragement of me. Many emails and texts have come to encourage us in these difficult times. And, and, and it's just been a blessing to see. <clears throat> Let's go down to verse 11 now as we... Move on in this passage. He says, not that I speak from want or poverty or need, but uh, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So I don't speak from want because I've learned a lesson in my life. I have learned. This was a process. I didn't come to it instantly or immediately. It took some time, but I have come to a place in my spiritual journey that I have learned to be content In whatever circumstances I am. Now the first thing we notice here is that Paul is not giving us the secret yet. He's not yet telling us how to be content. He's describing his contentment. Verse 11 is Paul saying, I don't need anything. Verse 11 is Paul saying, I have learned to be, this this literal definition is going to bug you. I have learned to be self-sufficient. That's what the word content here means. I have learned to be satisfied. Uh, In our day and age, Paul would be saying, I'm good. Paul, do you need anything, Paul? Is there anything we can send you? Is there anything we can do for you? I'm good. I'm good. Really, Paul? Really? You're good? You're under house arrest? And you're depending on your friends for lunch and dinner and breakfast? (laughs) You know, the Romans had this uh, tendency. It was really the way they did things. They didn't feed their prisoners. If a prisoner was going to eat, family members and friends had to bring them their food, their clothing, their daily necessities. Really, Paul? You're good? You don't have any needs at all? I mean, what would it take for Paul to say, I speak from what? Paul, what is your secret? How is this possible? Verse 12. He still doesn't give us the answer. He still doesn't tell us how. He just continues to describe his contentment. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. And listen, sometimes living in prosperity is harder than living in humble means. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned, there it is again, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. I have learned the secret of having abundance and suffering need. 
So Paul continues to describe in a very personal way. Look at all the I's and the me's here. He's, he's using himself as an example to these Philippian believers who are also suffering. And he's going deeper into his, into his contentment. Paul here is saying, whether I am humble, hungry, and needy, or whether I'm in prosperity and an overflow of absolute abundance, whether it's feast or famine, and as I look around these empty pews, this is a famine right now, let me assure you. Paul says, I know how to handle both. It doesn't matter, he's saying. It doesn't matter whether I have little or much. It doesn't matter whether I'm comfortable or uncomfortable. It doesn't matter whether I'm free or imprisoned. It doesn't matter, Paul says. How is this possible? This man is saying it doesn't matter if I live in a mansion on a golf course or in a single wide in the woods. It doesn't matter if I eat bread and water or if I get the Billie Jean special. It doesn't matter, he's saying. It doesn't matter if I drive a 74 Gremlin or a 2006 Honda Accord. Do you see what I did there, Toby? I don't think there are any 74 gremlins still (laughs) moving on the road, but you get the point. Paul says, I've learned the secret. And we need to just think about that for a moment. This is not something we come to instantly. You're not saved and then you're instantly right where Paul is here. This is part of sanctification. This is a process. He says, I have learned. But Paul has come to a place in his life where he has been initiated into a mysterious club. We might think of these secret clubs with their secret handshakes. And Paul says, I'm in the club. I know the secret. I know the mystery. But guess what? I'm not going to keep it a secret. I am ready to tell the world this great secret to my contentment. Are you now ready to hear it? It's verse 13, of course. Philippians 4.13. I thought about putting it under my eyes today in some... You know, athletic black stuff or whatever. Philippians 4.13, here it is. The secret, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the how to be content. There's only one way, it's verse 13. Now, this is an abused, I joke about it with the eye, eye black. This is an abused verse in our culture, in our sports infatuated, saturated culture. This is a, a verse that is misused and twisted to mean all kinds of things. Let's just say here on the front end that Philippians 4.13 is not a promise that you can run a marathon. All right? You probably can't. This is not a promise that you're going to score the winning touchdown in the Championship game, you probably won't. I played nine years of football. I never scored a touchdown, let alone the winning touchdown. This is not a promise that you're going to make a million dollars a year someday and and fulfill your financial dreams. Philippians 4.13 is not Christianized Disney theology. This is not, you can have whatever you want. As long as you can dream it, you can achieve it. You can be successful. You can win. That is not what is happening in Philippians 4.13. That is an abuse and a perversion of this glorious, beautiful verse. What Paul is saying in Philippians 4.13 in its context is this. I am able to be content in him because he empowers me to be content in him. He is saying that I can be content in the one who makes me content in himself. That's what he means by all things. 
That's what he has in mind here. All things is the, is the spectrum of humble means to prosperity and everything in between. And no matter what my circumstance of life, I can be content because Jesus Christ empowers me to be content in himself. If you have everything but Christ, you have nothing. If you have nothing but Christ, you have everything. Or as my pastor used to say, when Jesus is all you have, you find out that Jesus is all you need. You see, Paul is saying the secret is not in Paul. The secret is not in, I can buck up. The secret is I'm a stoic and I can get the stiff upper lip and I can endure anything. You know, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying I'm positive Pollyanna here who just puts a spin on every single thing in life and bounces through life all happy-go-lucky. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's not in Paul at all. It's not, it's not from his strength. The answer, the secret to how a person can be content is one word, Jesus. Jesus is how we are content in all circumstances of life. Verse 13 is how, you see. And we could theoretically end the sermon right there. This passage answers the question of how to be content in all circumstances. There's only one answer. That answer is verse 13. But I'm not content to stay there. I want to go deeper. I want to do some deep sea diving. I want to understand. My question is... How did Paul arrive at Philippians 4.13? This is not Philippians 1.13. This is Philippians 4.13. How did Paul get there? I'm talking practically, experientially. What, what lessons and what insights did he have to have in life to be able to arrive at this place? And say it with a clear conscience and it be true. That's what I want to answer. Is how did Christ empower Paul's contentment? Okay? Let me say that again. The question we're going to now answer is how did Christ empower Paul's contentment in Christ? We're going to do a flyover of Philippians and we're going to find four ways. Four ways this morning that Christ strengthened Paul to be content in Christ. Number one, by learning that to live is Christ and to die is gain, I'm content to live or die. Let's go to chapter 1 and verse 21. So it's a flyover of Philippians, and we begin with 121. Paul is in prison. He's uh, thankful for their prayers. Verse 19 He says in verse 20, he has a hope that he will not be put to shame, that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, he didn't know how this was going to turn out. He didn't know what the outcome would be. Verse 21, for to me. Here it is again, personal, singular. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only way death is gain, the only way death is profit is it means more of Christ, more clarity in seeing Christ, closer to Christ, filled with Christ, conformed to his image. If to live is Christ and to die is gain, then it has to mean more of his glorious presence without the hindrance of our sin and our flesh. He goes on in verse 22, says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. 
He's torn. He's torn between staying and ministering and proclaiming the gospel and serving Christians and reaching the lost versus exit, be with Christ in heaven. But I think this is the first step for Paul here in his journey to contentment. And it's the biggest step possibly. It's the step of saying my life or death, it doesn't matter ultimately, I'm content. And we can't get to this place in life until we have learned, until we have gotten insight, until we have seen that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That there is no way death can be lost to us. There is no way death can be a liability to us. There is no way that death can be anything other than the most glorious opening of a door that we've ever experienced. We first have to learn to live, though, to live as Christ. To find in Christ our satisfaction. To find in Christ a treasure, a satisfying treasure. To find in Christ someone who delights us, who satisfies the depths of our needy soul. To know that we're loved by the God-man himself who paid for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and, and waits to come back for his bride. It is to understand that nothing in this world compares to the treasure of Christ. That no... That, that no money, no experience, no trip, no graduation, no event, no person, no, no child, no anything of this world can compare to our glorious Christ. And, and so this is a process as well. For to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain is, is where we want to get to in our sanctification. It's where we need to move to as God tests us, as God takes things away from us through life, whether it's through COVID-19 or any other um, trial in life. As God weans us off of the power of the flesh and weans us off of this world and and casts us more and more and more on dependence on Christ, then we can come to say more and more with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And therefore, I'm content to live or to die. This is like conquering the greatest battle of all, right? And once this battle has been conquered, then the others are all secondary. They're all small in comparison. Uh, the, the things that we're being tested day by day as to contentment, if I can say this, we'll, we'll line up underneath it. So this is number one as we think about how Christ empowers us to be content. I have to recognize that my life is in his hands, that he has ordained the number of my days, that nothing I can do will ever change how long I will live. Only the quality of my life can be affected by my choices and decisions. That I belong to him, I've been purchased by his blood, and this really should change everything about our perspective on everything. This is how a Christian can be content in every circumstance. Because no matter what is happening to us, we can say, if I live, I'm fine with that. If I die, I'm fine with that. Right? Amen? We've we got to be able to come to a place as Christians and say, if God takes me out of this world today, I'm fine with that. If it's, if it's his will, I'm ready. And I'm not, I'm not clinging to something of this world that I'm elevating as a better experience than going to heaven and seeing Jesus Christ. That is the test here. All right, number two. The second way that Christ empowers us to be content comes out of chapter two. And I said it this way, by learning that the way up is down, I'm content to be laid low. 
By learning that the way up is down, I'm content to be laid low. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, meekness of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? The attitude of selflessness and humility of mind and lowliness, okay? That's what he's calling us to. It was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, a thing to be, you know, tightly. I can't, I can't let go of my glorious position in heaven. No, but verse 7, he emptied himself, never becoming less than deity, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant or a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And see, Jesus stepped down. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jesus took on humanity and being found in appearance as a man. He became a man, a full human being, dependent and hungry and thirsty. He became a man with needs like we have needs. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so there's just this descent down to the death on the cross for Christ. For this reason also... Because the way up is down, God highly exalted him. God lifted him up to the highest place and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up, way up is down, way down. Christ is exalted to the highest place and given the highest name and at the highest position because he went to the lowest place. He made the greatest degree of humiliation and meekness from his position as God, the eternal son in heaven to his position hanging on a cross for our sins. What an incredible distance he spanned by his incarnation and humiliation and passion week which begins today as we think about good friday and the cross that is to come in jesus life it is described here as becoming obedient to the point of death obeying the father's plan all the way to the nth degree what we learn from this passage is what paul learned that the way up is down and because the way up is down and then I can be content to be laid low by God. When I remember how God does things, and this pattern is throughout all of Scripture, when I understand that this is the walk of faith and this is the bearing of our cross now, then I can be content for God to humble me, to take things away from me, and I can be laid low before Him in dependence and meekness and brokenness As God weans me off of the things of my flesh and the things that I would demand to have, we go through this process of being laid low. This is a process we all need because we all uh, deal with pride on a regular basis and arrogance and haughtiness and independence from God and a demanding spirit. We all deal with being uh, ungrateful, being spoiled, uh, being want, wanting what we want, when we want it, right now, the way we want it. Being demanding. Demanding of one another. Demanding of God. Demanding of life. We're being tested right now. I was sharing earlier before the service. You know, I've gone from, from initial concern to stun and shock to, 
to sadness to now kind of mad, kind of dealing with irritation and frustration with this ongoing thing. And, and uh, that's, that's, that's because the test is being intensified. And the test is one of contentment. And, and here, are we content to be laid low by God? Are we content to not get to do all the things we hope to do and plan to do? Life not to go the way we thought it ought to go. Content to be submissive to governing authorities that we may not respect or think are telling us the truth or think are right. Content to just, you know, deal with what comes our way as citizens of heaven. This is critical that we understand and learn that the way up is down. And so when God brings us down, we know that there is a reason for it. Number three. Third way that Christ is empowering us to be content in him takes us to chapter three. Number three is by learning that we are saved by faith, not works, I'm content to rest in Christ. This takes us to the heart of the gospel. It's chapter three, verse nine. In Paul's testimony here in chapter three, he says in verse nine that he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul had come to see and learn and understand and then preach to others that we are not saved by keeping the law. We're not saved by our works and our good deeds. We're not saved by our morality. We're not saved because we were good Boy Scouts and good parents and good employees. Uh, We're not saved because we were good citizens and signed up for this um, committee or that club and did this good deed. None of those things can cause a holy God to overlook our sin. None of those things can cause a holy God to say, oh yeah, your sin's not that big a deal. I'll turn a blind eye. Paul came to understand through God's revelation to him that he had a righteousness that was not his own derived from law. It wasn't produced by Paul's efforts. It was a righteousness that came to him as a pure gift from God, a gift of his grace. When, G- when Paul believed in Jesus, God imputed to Paul's account the righteousness of Christ. And that's what he speaks of here. It's, it's that moment of justification in the eyes of God, declared righteous and forgiven of all of your sins. He says, I now have a righteousness which comes from God. God is the source of my righteousness. I'm not the source of my righteousness. <clears throat> this righteousness is impeccable. It's, uh, it's unassailable. Uh, this righteousness cannot be stained. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be uh, diminished in any way. It's God's own righteousness. And it's come to me on the basis of faith. Period. Not faith in works, not faith in effort, not faith in baptism, not faith in circumcision, not faith in anything else, but faith in Christ, Christ alone. See, when we learn that we are saved by faith and not works, then I can be content to rest in Christ. You're not saved until you rest in Christ. You're not saved until you give up trusting in yourself and what you've done to save yourself. Of recognizing that it's filthy rags in the sight of God. That this doesn't accomplish anything but additional condemnation for my pride of being self-righteous. It just adds to your sin. It doesn't take it away. It just makes your hell hotter. It doesn't diminish it. Jesus' strongest words were for the Pharisees who were self-righteous in themselves. 
See, when we come to see that we're saved by dependence upon Christ, when our righteousness is Christ, when, when He is all our hope and righteousness, when we come to see that, we can just rest in Him. And this brings us to a place of contentment. See, Paul's Philippians 4.13 was a journey, and this is a critical stop on the way. In fact, this is the start, isn't it? If we were to put these in order, this would be the start of that journey. You can never get to, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me until you have rested in his completed work on the cross and his resurrection and his ability to save you without your help. He doesn't need your help to save you. You can't help him. You can't contribute. He must do it all. And this is the sweet surrender of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. Are you content today to rest in Christ and what he's done for you? Or are you trying to add to his perfect work? Number four, the fourth and final way this morning that we see how Christ empowers us to be content in himself comes from chapter three as well. It's verse 20 and 21. Let me read it. And then I'll describe it. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Number four, by learning that this world is not my home, I can be content to wait for Christ's return. COVID-19 is teaching us once again that this world is fallen, broken, and under the curse of God. And because we're the children of God, we're groaning within ourselves, Romans 8, to be set free from the corruption of this world and the corruption of our flesh. This, this pandemic and the worldwide panic that is coming with the pandemic is teaching us that we're not of this world. That we're not home, we're not made for here ultimately. We're here for a season, we're here for a purpose. God has us exactly where we're supposed to be in his will for now, but we're just passing through. When I learn that this world is not my home, then I can be content to wait for Christ's return. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't just wait though, right? Look at verse 20. We, how do we wait? We eagerly wait. This is not a passive resignation. This is an active, eager waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking and praying and working and waiting. Praying and waiting. Serving and waiting. Not folding our hands, sitting on our hands, not in resignation that we can do nothing, but understanding that Jesus is going to return, make all things right. Our hope springs eternal. He will one day transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his glorified body. He's going to take these bodies, whether they're living or in the grave, whether they've disintegrated into ashes or, or still limping along on this fallen planet, he's going to take that body with all of its problems and he's going to transform it and glorify it to be like his risen body. And he's going to do this by the exertion of the power that he has to subject everything to himself. So one day, my bad toe and my hernia surgery stuff and my bad shoulder and allergies and a cranky back and all of that's just going to be gone. All of that is going to be disappear in a moment. 
in a twinkling of an eye. I need to remember during COVID-19, this, this world is not my home. I'm not going to get caught up in it. I'm not going to get consumed in it. I'm waiting eagerly for Christ's return. I'm not waiting eagerly for the end of COVID-19. Because this is just one of many things of a groaning creation. A big one. A bad one. But there'll be something else. Whether it's worldwide or not, or whether it's just in our own lives, there'll be something else behind this. Yeah, I can't wait till this is over, but I really should say I can't wait till Christ returns. That's what I'm eagerly waiting for. That's where my sights are set. Because every time I set my sights on this world, it disappoints me, right? It lets me down. And even when I think I'm getting what I had wanted, even in that, there is uh, going to be a disappointment. So let's review these four things and then we'll conclude this message. Four ways that Christ empowers us to be content. Number one, by learning that to live is Christ and to die is gain, I'm content to live or die. Number two, by learning that the way up is down, I'm content to be laid low. Number three, by learning that we are saved by faith, not works, I'm content to rest in Christ. I am not going to add uh, one bit of effort to the salvation he has accomplished for me. And number four, by learning that this world is not my home, I'm content to wait eagerly for Christ's return. Is satisfaction with status quo getting stretched thin in your life? It is in mine. I, I just started laughing yesterday as it's pouring down rain. It just, I just thought, this is, this is just absurd. <laughs> we can't go anywhere. We can't see anybody. Uh, we can't do anything. And now we can't even go outside. We're just in our house watching it pour down rain. You just get to do nothing but laugh. Friday morning, I was trying to find a webcam so that I could do Zoom better than just using my phone. And uh, Toby was helping me with that, and he sent me a link to a webcam for 80 bucks from Dell, and it was going to solve all my little Zoom problems, and, and I was getting ready to order it. I'd put in all the information and was about to hit place order, and then I noticed that it will not be delivered until July the 16th. <laughs> I was like, and then five minutes later, I get a text about Zoom bombing and people hacking into Zoom meetings with uh, pornographic images and very disturbing things. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, do I even need the camera now? <laughs> and then Friday night, uh, our youngest son and his wife call us and uh, he's like, hey, what are y'all doing this weekend? I'm like, what do you think we're doing? We're doing nothing. <laughs> we're doing what everybody else is doing. And he's like, we're bored to death. Can we come for a visit? So I'll pull up, you know, what does it mean to shelter in place? What does it mean to stay home in Austin, Texas? That's where they are. And I'll pull up, how many cases are in Travis County? It's 350 something. And I said, sure, I don't care if you come visit. You are welcome to come visit, but your mom may die. Okay, so, <laughs> well, dad, if you put it that way, you know. And for the first time in all of this journey, I saw my wife was uh, truly irritated. She was truly bothered. It's like, this is just wrong. Our kids can't come home. Our kids can't come visit. You know what the reality is? The reality is that God has only merely begun to test our contentment. 
he is just scratching the surface. I mean, this thing could be ten times worse. It could be a hundred times worse. The time is now to learn Paul's secret. The time is now to turn off the world and tune in to God. I didn't say turn off your neighbor. I didn't say stop caring about people. Turn off the world and tune in to God. The time is to wake up and to ask ourselves, God, what are you doing in my life through COVID-19? I don't care about the million infected. I care, but I'm not consumed with that right now. How many have died? I don't know. Those numbers are not even accurate. Okay, God, I'm asking you, what are you doing in my life? through all of this. God, what do I need to learn? That's what I'm asking you, God. I'm asking you, how do I need to change? What changes does our family need to make? That's where we need to be as this drags on and on. Let's pray. Father, those are our questions right now as we just uh, quietly bow before you here in this room and at home on these uh, devices, Lord, and with our family. We bow and ask you these questions right now. How do you want us to change? What are you doing in our lives? Take a moment to ponder that thought, to pose that question, to consider what you've heard this morning, meditating on God's answer in his word. Confessing any sins that need to be confessed. Perhaps now is the time to place your faith in Christ. Maybe now is the time to get serious about your Christian life. To wake up to the realities of a fallen world. To live on the edge of eternity. To be ready to live or to die. Whatever God has for you. Father, we know you're at work. We know that this will work uh, together for our good. We know that we can still experience the peace of God in the midst of all of this. But Lord, it's easy for us to be distracted by this and it's easy for us to wonder about somebody else and to think about people who might be infected or who are really, really sick. And those are good thoughts for us to have, Lord, for sure. But I don't want us to miss what we need to be asking ourselves and asking you, and that is... How do we need to change? Help us, Lord, as we sing this final song to once again keep our eyes on you and to live a life that is fully committed and devoted to the sake of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.